0: My name is Augustus. This is the Preservation of the Human Race. Welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Hey, AJ. Yeah,
1: for sure. Thanks Augustus. Yeah, I think first we'd just like to talk about give a quick background and then kind of especially touch on, you know, the big win for Monsanto and what that means for other cases. Around 2017,
2: I found it, the the predecessor to Children's Health Defense. I also was doing, have been doing for over a decade, multi district and class action litigation of against pharmaceutical companies and against big polluters. So I did the case, the DuPont case that is now the subject of the Mark Ruffalo film, Dark Waters, if you've seen that. I was on the trial team in the Monsanto case, where we won the three Monsanto cases. The first one, we won $289 million for Roundup. The second one we won um, eighty nine million that was a federal case that we were supposed to lose the third one. we were back in the state Supreme Court in or superior Court in California, and we won a two point two billion dollar judgment from the jury B billion with a B. We then settled the all of the cases by then there were some forty thousand cases with Monsanto.
1: It's um interesting how scary it could be like a company like Monsanto being bought by Bayer. Is there anything in particular that with that that buy that we should be concerned about as like citizens every day?
2: Well, the Bayer purchase was interesting because we had already filed our lawsuit when Bayer purchased Monsanto. And when we filed our lawsuit Bayer paid $63 billion for Monsanto. About six months later, when we had finished two of our lawsuits, the total value of Bayer was $63 billion. So our lawsuits erased 100% of the value of Monsanto. It's probably one of the worst corporate purchases in history. I mean, it caused some huge amounts of money and it almost caused the dissolution of Bayer. But, you know, the the supposition behind your question is a good one. Companies like Bayer, which is a huge pharmaceutical and chemical company with unlimited power, is, you know, it should be frightening in a democracy.
0: Thank you. Definitely. One of the things I wanted to follow up on with all that being said is, is your book that just came out. You had uh, outlined and cited quite a bit of information regarding Dr. Fauci in your new book. How can someone who looks well credential-wise but has a troublesome past get into such a position of authority?
2: Well, Tony Fauci is the J. Edgar Hoover of public health. And the sad thing about our health agencies is that they are... They become templates for agency capture. Agency capture is a phenomenon that happens to virtually all regulatory agencies to some extent or another where, where they become the sock puppets for the industry that they're supposed to regulate. Oh, this happens everywhere. I'd say in the hundreds of lawsuits that I brought against pollution, probably 20% to a quarter were against regulatory agencies who were making sweetheart deals with polluters that were illegal, and we had to sue to force them to do their job. The polluters and pharmaceutical companies have many, many ways of corrupting and capturing the agencies. With the public health ra- agencies, the capture phenomenon is on steroids. And the reason for that is because of unprecedented financial entanglements between the regulatory agencies and pharmaceutical companies, for example, FDA gets 45% of its total budget from pharmaceutical companies. The CDC spends $4.9 billion of its $12 billion budget purchasing vaccines from these vaccine companies and then distributing them. You do not get promotions or salary increases at CDC for finding problems with the vaccines. You get promoted by increasing vaccine uptake. Oh, the regulatory agency has really become a subsidiary and an arm of the industry. The CDC, in fact, owns fifty-seven vaccine patents. Oh, every time those vaccines are sold, CDC makes money. Or HHS, its mother agency, NIH, which is Tony Fauci's agency, owns thousands of patents he and that agency can get up to half of the revenues which means that billions and billions and billions of dollars and not only that but individuals tony fauci's top deputies in that agency under hhs rules are allowed to also own have walk-in rights for those patents oh so, tony fauci can designate certain of his loyal lieutenants To receive patent rights to all of the products. And he has designated at least four of them to receive patent rights to the Moderna vaccine, which means those individuals, on top of their government salaries, will receive $150,000 a year for life from vaccine royalties as long as Moderna keeps selling vaccines. So those people have very little incentive to find problems with that vaccine that, or, or create recalls or create problems with its marketing. They want to see that vaccine sold. And that is not a good impulse for public health within a public health agency.
1: So in regards to the the vaccines and the whole situation about potentially having already having resources. And aside from the money aspect, is there anything we can do to battle that and like regular citizens demand that we get clinical trials on new indications for existing meds?
2: Unfortunately, the clinical trials for the Pfizer vaccine, which is the only approved vaccine, were a sham. And let, let me explain very briefly what happened. The clinical trials are supposed to last for four years until the end of 2023. But Tony Fauci allowed them to terminate the trials in six months of they unblinded the trials and they gave the vaccine to the placebo group. That means that we have no idea and we never will have any idea about what long-term health impacts of those vaccines are. Why did they blind it? unblinded. Well, clearly, by that time, by the time they unblinded, it, they knew that the vaccine efficacy was declining like a stone. Oh, so within two months, it had lost significant efficacy. Within six months, it basically has lost all of its efficacy. And that's why people need boosters. And what we're seeing in places now, like the most vaccinated places on Earth, which are Gibraltar, Israel, Vermont is the most vaccinated state. It has the highest COVID rates. So clearly they had to end the trials quicker than they thought. Now, but here's what they did. They made a full report of what happened during that period to FDA. So they gave the six-month study. And here's what the six-month study said. There's 22,000 people in the vaccine group and roughly 22,000 in the placebo group over a six month period. The key graph, by the way, is the all cause mortality graph, which is S4 for those of you who want to look it up. And that graph, which you can see when you look at it, there was of the 22,000 people in the vaccine group, there was one death over six months of a COVID death. Of the 22,000 people in the placebo group, there were two COVID deaths. So that allowed the claim to the American people that the vaccine is 100% effective because two is 100% of one. That is a metric called relative risk. Most Americans think they're talking about absolute risk when they hear it's 100% effective. And what that would mean, Americans believe that if you get the vaccine, you're 100% not likely to get COVID. That's not what it means. What it really means is they have to give 22,000 vaccines to prevent one COVID death. Well, if you have to give 22,000 vaccines, you better make sure that none of those vaccines is going to cause a single death, or you would have completely canceled out 100% of the benefits, the mortality benefits from the vaccine. So, Here's what, unfortunately, what their own data shows, which you can see if you go to this chart, S4. In the vaccine group, there were 20 deaths of the 22,000 people over six months from all causes. In the placebo group, there were only 14 deaths from all causes. So if you look at that data and extrapolate, what that means is that if you get the vaccine, you're 48% more likely to die over the next six months. How were they dying? How did those excess deaths occur? Well, most of them, almost all of them were heart attacks. So in the vaccine group, there were five fatal heart attacks in the six months. In the placebo group, there was only one. So what that suggests is that if you take the vaccine, you have a 500 percent elevated risk of dying from a heart attack over the next six months compared to unvaccinated people. What, another way of looking at that is that for every life that they save from COVID, the vaccines are causing four deaths from heart attacks and that is not a good formula and i think if the american people had a widespread awareness of that they'd be less likely to comply with the vaccine mandates and they definitely would not let their kids comply because what we're seeing is what's causing those heart attacks is myocarditis pericarditis and thrombosis and those appear to be affecting athletes children. In other words, people with very robust immune systems and pulmonary systems, much worse than older groups.
3: Mr. Kennedy, um, if you don't mind me asking, what is the key or what key ingredient is most concerning or perhaps the trigger for the myocarditis or the heart attacks? Do we have any data to suggest what's causing this? Or in your opinion, what is the most concerning key ingredient? I can't answer that question because the science on that is not completely
2: clear. But it appears that the spike protein causes a blood clots. And that is what's causing, you know, that is what's causing these. It irritates the what they call the endothelium, which is the lining of the blood vessels, and it throws off a lot of clots. And that appears to be the source of a lot of these pulmonary and coronary issues. I, I I don't think yet we have the absolute answer to that question.
3: Got you. And and I'm not sure if this was asked earlier, but as Dad mentioned recently in the news, that I guess the FDA was requiring or asking for 55 years to release Pfizer vaccine data. What are the odds of that being overturned and perhaps us accessing the data? Earlier or is that the general period? In my view, we should win that
2: case. It should be alarming to Americans that you know this process which was so hasty and so haphazard, but they said, Don't worry, we're gonna make it completely transparent. And now the FDA is petitioning a court to deny freedom of information act access to the clinical trial data that it promised it would be transparent about, and not only that. When the court said, how long do you want to delay FDA, how long do you want to stop the American public from looking at Pfizer's data? FDA answered that question 55 years. So what is in that data that they are so anxious to hide or long enough to make sure everybody involved in the process, everybody who made decisions and everybody who knows the answers is dead? and can no longer be sued
1: wow that's heavy something else that we wanted to ask or augustus you may want to jump in more because i think you know more about it but um event 201 and you know are these simulations (laughs) on intelligence um that's unknown to everyday citizens or is it more like just simply statistical likelihood of an event occurring
0: right like i mean the only information i really know is the stuff that that you actually had mentioned in the um, speech that you gave at Times Square last month, amazing speech, by the way, that was really moving at the March against the media. And in that you had mentioned um, that the you had gotten a booklet and the booklet, there was like 14 other simulations. Um, Yeah, I mean, I thought that that was that was next level
2: information. So for people who don't know, uh, event 201 was an event, was a, a simulation of a pandemic, of a coronavirus pandemic. It took place in October 2019. It was a full day simulation at the Pierre Hotel in New York City. It was hosted by Bill Gates and by Avril Haynes, who was the deputy director of the CIA former deputy director, and is today the head of National Security Agency. So she's the top spy in the country, and she's managing the coronavirus pandemic response. And so, you know, the first question is, why is the CIA involved in pandemics? And, And then, you know, and I'm going to answer that question in a minute. Uh, that Also there, you have to remember this, October 2019, it's already circulating. The Chinese already know about it. The hospital parking lots were filled with people already. There were people from the lab being shipped to, uh, you know, who were sick with COVID symptoms. Now, what's significant to operation or to event 201 is that one of the people there at that event are social media companies major media companies like bloomberg and washington post pharmaceutical companies like johnson and johnson and and george gale of the chinese cdc somebody who had good reason to know what's happening in wuhan at that time which is a public health emergency Oh, so they are simulating, believe it or not, a worldwide global coronavirus pandemic. And the coronavirus has escaped from a lab. And what they drill is, has nothing to do with medicine or healing or public health. It's all about how do you use a pandemic as a pretense for clamping down totalitarian controls, for abolishing freedom of speech. Or locking people in their houses or you know it's not there's nothing about it okay everybody we need to stockpile vitamin d and zinc we need to link all the 11 million doctors around the front like doctors around the globe to figure out you know to get them to report in about protocols that are working with repurposed medications etc It's not about how do we quarantine the sick? How do we preserve the constitution during a pandemic? All the things that you and I would want them to be doing, they don't do any of those things. What they do instead is they're talking about the controlled demolition of democracy in our country and all across the globe. And they spend an entire seminar, the fourth seminar in longest, talking about how to suppress rumors on the internet on the social media sites that this coronavirus pandemic escaped from a lab so george gao and all these other people are talking about it when they start talking about when people start saying on the internet that this was a lab escape it was an engineered virus how did we get the social media companies to shut that down it's it's a very suspicious thing that they were doing and what. I, uh, and, or it was incredibly, you know, it was an incredible act of soothsaying uh, by these guys. Two months later, we're doing exactly, and and they're talking about mRNA vaccines. That's a whole seminar on that. How do we get mRNA, everybody to take an mRNA vaccine? Well when I started looking at this history, what I found was this was not a one-off event. They were doing this basically every year since 2020. And in fact, they started doing it in 2019, the first one, Dark Winter, which was an anthrax attack. And then three months after they did this this anthrax attack simulation, there was an anthrax attack. And it was so close to the simulation that after the simulation, Congress, the Senate held hearings on, you know, on our vulnerability to an anthrax attack. And when the anthrax attack occurred, that hearing was going on. And then, of course, later it turned out the anthrax it was blamed on Saddam Hussein and we went to war in Iraq. But afterwards, the FBI report found that actually it did not come from Saddam. It came from one of three U.S. military labs. And that, you know, immediately after the anthrax attacks, we passed the Patriot Act. The two people who had been voting against the Patriot Act, Patrick Leahy, And Gary Hart, the two leaders, they were the ones who were attacked with anthrax. So the whole thing is really sketchy. And it was all predicted by this, you know, pandemic simulation. And then they did these simulations again and again, year after year. The one thing they all have in common, they are all orchestrated and hosted by the CIA. So each one of them, there's high-level CIA officers. They also, almost all of them, have a famous person to give the thing the imprimatur of authenticity uh, and credibility, so they'll have Madeline Albright or Gary Hart, Senator Gary Hart, Senator Sam Nunn, uh, uh, some other congressman, Bill Gates, uh, Fauci. So each one of them has a well known figure. And some of them involve 10, 20, 30,000 people. The frontline workers there, they were classified, so nobody's allowed to talk about them. The utilities all across our country, the hospitals, the frontline workers, law enforcement agencies are all involved, not only in our country, but simultaneously. They're doing it in Canada, Australia, and all over Europe. And the series is called Operation Lockstep. And what it is, is how do you get all of the Western liberal democracies to pivot at the same time and demolish constitutional
0: government? and it's
2: very very scary and
0: informative there's that process of mass formation the process of mass formation which is like that mass hypnosis mass psychosis process that i think has a lot to do with it too
2: yeah i mean all of the techniques uh they've used on us during the last year, which is this orchestrated fear, the constant propaganda, the the confused data, all of the efforts to kind of undermine social institutions and economies, the shutting down of the economy, the separation of families, separation of people. Social are all techniques that are are outlined in the CIA manuals of how you take over an indigenous country. You know, you sow confusion, you erode faith in institutions, you destroy the economy, you separate people, you create polarization, turn them against each other, you use propaganda to fill everybody with fear, you make you Vacillate with truth and lies, you send out rumors of war, worse rumors of war. All of these techniques, and particularly isolation, are techniques that have been outlined for many, many years in the, in the CIA manual. And how do you, you lock an entire country under house arrest and, and induce in them this, this well known syndrome called Stockholm Syndrome, which is a condition where People who are locked up become grateful to their captors and believe that anybody who criticizes their captors is the enemy, and believe that the only way to survive all is through utter obedience and compliance with the wishes of their captors. And you can do that to a whole country, as it turns out.
1: Well, that's pretty scary. Are those the same techniques Uh, that they were using? back in the 60s, or are these newly, more newly developed?
2: No, they, they developed it over many years. The CIA was engaged in 73 coup d'etats against a third of the countries in the world between 1947 and 2000. So they were developing these techniques all the time. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they put huge amounts of money into the university system. To research the questions of mass control of societies and individual controls, they were exploring how do you turn somebody into a Manchurian candidate so that you can, you know, trigger them to murder people, you know, an innocent person. Essentially, they were doing all of these techniques. They were funding experiments at over 150 college and universities in the United States, Canada, and some in Central America too. And they were using prisoners. They were using people who were expendable. They were using hobos and. Bums from the street uh, they were using people from mental institutions from prisons from the military from uh, foster homes etc and they were doing these very they're, they're, the program was called MK ultra and of course you everybody on this phone knows about this and operation Arctic choke and there was a lot of other names for it too MK search was another one
1: I think Corey had a question yeah
0: that's what I wanted to get to Hey, Mr. Kennedy, uh, thanks again for your time. What I was going to say is, you know, coming from a family that is synonymous with the freedom movement and trying to shed light in the shadow areas of government, this truth movement we're, we're seeking today. What would you say is the most important message that you have to pass on to kind of the individuals today that may be struggling with what you said, like that maybe the the I don't know, sixty six percent of people that are are afraid to stand up or, or maybe ashamed at you know maybe the fact that they've gone ahead and taken the vaccine or not stood up for their family or not stood up to their employer. What would that message be to those people?
2: I would say we, you know we need to build the resistance in the way the people we're fighting are insurmountable. They're, you know, as I show, it's the intelligence agencies, the military, it's of these pharmaceutical companies. It's virtually 533 out of 535 members of Congress. Is the entire media, the entire social media is all on their side. So how do we win that? And the answer is you win one convert at a time. There is a conversion going on now. You know, when we started this, there was maybe 5% or 10% of people were with us, and that's getting bigger and bigger. And the conversions all happen from that side to our side. And the way those conversions are going to happen, the way propaganda works is that people hear the same message again and again and again. And no matter how much of a cognitive you know, departure there is from reality, they if they hear it enough, they'll believe it. And what we need to do is start letting them hear another message, but not from Anderson Cooper, not from Tony Fauci, but from you and me. So every day, you know, we all need to commit civil disobediences, which means you go to the store where they're saying no mass and you say, I'm not going to come in this store anymore and I'm going to tell my friends not to. And you talk to people who are subsumed in the orthodoxy and you try to wake them up. And I I can give you a hint about that, because I talked to a very well-known psychologist and social psychologist, and I said, how do you get people who are in the midst of a mass psychosis, how do you get them out of it? And what he said to me is, here's what you can't do. You cannot show them facts and figures. You make a direct assault on their belief system. They'll simply fortify it, they'll entrench, they'll look at you as dangerous. They simply will not be able to hear what you say. The only way that you can convert those people is through Socratic method is by questioning them and doing it in a way that's not threatening. Ask them a question: do you think that a vaccine that can't prevent transmission can end a pandemic? And do you think that, you know, we ought to be mandating people receive a vaccine that doesn't prevent transmission? You know, or whatever. There's a million questions that you all have if you even think about this for a second. And it's asking those questions at plants a seed that opens a little door of light. And once that gets in, it's like putting a camel's nose under the tent. The light is going to get in. The camel is going to grow in there eventually. And that, so all of our job is to talk to one or two people every day and try to open their eyes. And, you know, if enough of us do that, we will hit a tipping point pretty soon where we have 40 or 50 or 60 percent of the people. And then, you know, no matter how strong the barriers that these
0: institutions put against us, we will be able to tear them down. Thank you so much, Mr. Kennedy. It's an honor to to have you on stage here. I just wanted to briefly say that there's a lot of us on Clubhouse, hundreds of thousands of people that are resisting, and this is one of the few platforms at the time that we can actually do that. And I just wanted you to know that there are people here. We're united in resisting, and uh, we will continue that and would love to have you back. Thank you so much for being gracious with your time, and it's truly a blessing to have you here.
2: Thank you for that. And it's really heartening to because I don't really know much about clubhouse. It's really heartening to find a community of people who actually are on a site where we're allowed to talk to each other, we're allowed to express dissent. We're allowed to have conversations and debate which is what, you know, democracy thrives on. We need we need to create institutions where we can start talking to each other, where we can find common ground, where we it's not Republicans against Democrats or blacks against whites. The elites, the oligarchy, want division. They want us fighting each other. They want us hating each other. And that way they can steal everything that we got. So uh, one of the acts of civil disobedience that you can do is to buy my book, and to give it to somebody, give it to a relative who doesn't agree with you, give it to somebody for Christmas, we need, you know, books are, and by the way, I make no money from the book. A hundred percent of my profits go to children's health defense or run our litigation, et cetera. But the book is a really important device. One is because the only place they can, they're not censoring right now is book, although You know, no publisher will publish a review of it, but I'm still number one on Amazon. And the big challenge is to become number one on the New York Times list, because that will be excruciating to them. That will be a a punch to the gut. And the New York Times has all these methodologies for keeping books like this off of its list. It will do everything it can to keep us off So if you're going to buy a book, the best place to do it is in a Barnes Noble or an independent bookstore near you. The best thing is to walk in and buy five copies or, you know, to buy online from that bookstore. And that itself is a really important act of civil disobedience. We can keep this book on the top. It is more and more embarrassing. It makes more and more other sites call me and say, I want to talk to you and our reach gets louder and wider and broader. So that's something everybody can do. Give it to your relatives, give it to your friends, and thank you all the clubhouse community for your support. I, you know, and even uh, The best thing I can say is if there's people on this who don't agree with me and, uh, and are able to have a conversation with people they do not agree with. I love that. That's what we ought to be doing. That's the only way we're going to save our democracy. Thank you all very much.
3: Thank Mr. So Kennedy, Mr. Kennedy, uh, on behalf hey, of the F- entire uh, club, preservation of the human race, we really uh, thank you for your time today. We really admire you for being courageous and for being able to join us in this platform. And uh, we will be sharing that link. Thank you for clarifying the the difference between Amazon and bars Thank you, guys.